Humanity as a collective society, in my opinion, at this point, we have to understand this time of year, late January into early February, basically any tweet that is sent out by a company or any social media, you know, any social media uh, posting by a by a company that is of large size is more than likely going to be a teaser for a Super Bowl commercial. Okay, we're going to have to just start getting used to that. We saw the M&M's thing that was like trending on Twitter all day yesterday uh, of them basically saying they're putting aside their candies and uh, they're going to they're going to make their spokesperson Maya Rudolph from here on out. That's not a real announcement, ladies and gentlemen. That's just them preparing for a Super Bowl ad. Okay, that's what they're going to do this time of year. That's what we always do. I hate how far out they're beginning this. They're advertising their own advertisement for the Super Bowl. That's really annoying. I'll be honest with you. I think it's kind of, I, I think your ad will be better for the Super Bowl and for viewing entertainment if I didn't have a preview of the ad, if that makes sense. I now know that Maya Rudolph is going to be in the Eminem ad during the Super Bowl. And I know the Eminem, Eminem's is going to have a Super Bowl ad. So you don't have to tease it. You don't need to tease that. Just put it out there. Just put the Super Bowl ad in the Super Bowl. That's all we need. We don't need a teaser for your advertisement. That's just double advertisement. Okay. I hate that. Stop it, Eminem's. And they're the only one that I've seen do it this year, but I'm pretty sure last year we had a couple of those uh, similar instances where it was like a little teaser. It was even a clip for a couple of a uh, couple advertisements where it was like a teaser of their actual advertisement. And then at the end of the teaser, it was like the date of the Super Bowl, you know, two, eight, 22, you know, see the full story two eight twenty two, something stupid like that. And it's like, what are we doing? Well, like, why are we why are we teasing Unless it's like a movie trailer, why are we teasing advertisements like they're movie trailers for a Super Bowl, for the Super Bowl advertising? And I love I love the ads as much as the next guy, but your advertisements are better if I'm not teased to them. Just like movies are better if you don't see the preview for the actual film. Like if you go watch any movie before and you haven't seen the preview of the said movie that you're going to go watch, that movie is inherently better because almost every preview now has a spoiler of what they're trying to, what they're going to show. I just watched a, a horror movie that I had seen a couple of trailers on just because they were on television when I happened to be watching television. And one of the best scares of the movie was spoiled during the preview. That is one of the biggest frustrations. This is why I don't watch previews of anything of, I mean, obviously advertisements because that's stupid, but also for movies, I just don't watch previews for movies because I don't want something spoiled that should, especially horror movies, horrors are, horror movies are really bad about that because obviously they have to drag, they have to pull you in somehow to the movie theater. And for horror movies, it has to be the scares of the movie that are going to get people to get there. It's not going to be the story of the movie or anything like that. Like that. If you're going to a horror movie, you're not going there for necessarily the story of the film or the story of the, uh, uh, the story of the, of the movie itself. I mean, that that's just kind of a, a nice little cherry on top. You're there for the scares. And for a movie that I watched recently, that one of the biggest scares of the whole movie, of the, one of the only scares of the whole like second into third act was in was in the trailer, which was very disappointing because I saw it happen and I was like, OK, I've seen this in the trailer. So it wasn't as scary anymore. Anyways, long tangent that stop advertise, stop teasing your advertisements for the advertisements at the Super Bowl. OK, let's stop doing that. M&M's didn't need to put out that statement. That was stupid. OK, it just it made I think everybody kind of caught on to what they were doing because it is this time of year. We are collectively as hum- human beings, especially in America, getting to the point where we're realizing, oh, OK, so this is just a fake statement. We're getting ready for a Super Bowl ad. That's what's going to happen. And Maya Rudolph is going to be the spokesperson in the ad. Got it. OK. That's what's going on next. Let's move on here. I hate, I just, it's so just put your Super Bowl ad in the Super Bowl. Don't talk about it. Just put your ad in the Super Bowl. And then afterwards, 
Tweet the clip, tweet the actual advertisement on Twitter so other people can go back and watch it after the Super Bowl. That's what you should be doing. Okay, that that's all you need to do. You do not need to make a statement if you're M and M's or a teaser for your advertisement at the Super Bowl. And granted, it was trending. It did make M and M's trend, but they were definitely being clowned on. It wasn't because oh, this is a really smart idea. This is super cool. No, they were getting clowned on because we were like, what is this? Why why are they doing this? So that that happened yesterday. That was weird. That was a weird thing that happened yesterday. Uh, but well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Weekend Sports Rap Podcast. I thought I'd intro with something random like that because that was trending all day yesterday on Twitter and was very confusing to a lot of people. But it's just a Super Bowl ad, and we're getting there. We're getting to the Super Bowl, and once it's done, then we don't have to worry about all these weird cryptic tweets by advertisers or, and stuff like that and by, by Doritos or something or Taco Bell or whatever. So just be prepared for that for the next few weeks. Uh, welcome to the Weekend Sports Rap Podcast. I'm your host. James Timberlake. I'm I'm back again, like last week. Back like I never left. Nothing's changed except some football happened. Some some football games happened that were not very fun. Divisional round was a little disappointing. I'll be honest with you. We got one of the oh the creme de la cremes of football finishes that I have I can I have seen in recent memory. One I that that Thursday or excuse me that Sunday night game. The ending of that game. I don't think I've I, that that made my weekend. I laughed harder than I'd laughed in the last few weeks. Um, it, I was wheezing at the end of that game. I was wheezing and I felt bad for Cowboy fans because which that's rare, but I felt bad for Cowboy fans. Cause I was like, that's how your season's going to end. That's got to feel bad. That's got to feel tough. That's got to feel tough. And then all the videos surfacing of Cowboy fans, like breaking their TVs and stuff, which it's like, what are we doing? Okay. At that point, if you are not having, if you're not having the, the, um, the, the moment where, you know, the sudden realization, the epiphany, I guess of, Wow, this I'm taking this way too seriously. After you punched a hole into your television, however expensive a $200 television or whatever, if you're punching a hole into a $200 television and you're not having the epiphany afterwards of wow, I'm taking this too seriously, then you need to we need to you need to you need to see somebody. You need to talk somebody. Talk to somebody because that is it is not that serious. Okay? Let's relax, okay? Nothing is worth Nothing, nothing is worth putting a hole into an electronical device, an electronic device like a television, especially a 4K television or anything, anything like that, because those bad boys are expensive. Do not put a hole in your television because your team lost. OK, it is not that serious, ladies and gentlemen. It is a football team. It is a basketball team. It is a baseball team. They're going to lose sometimes. You're not going to win every single game. You're not going to make it to the Super Bowl every single year. And if you're Cowboys fans, you're not going to make it for 30 years. That was an unnecessary jab. I apologize. Didn't need to do that, but I thought that was, I built that up pretty well, so I thought I'd slide that in there. But the point is, it doesn't matter if you've never been there, okay? doesn't matter. I'm a Vikings fan. We, we never won anything. I never won a single thing. Don't break your stuff. You don't need to. I, You know how I got over this? I was younger, and I did the same thing. I was one of you, okay? I was one, I'm talking to you, Cowboys fans. I was one of you people. I, actually, just fans in general of teams that lose if you're putting holes in things. I'm talking to you, okay? I was, one, I was just like you. I was just like you. I used to be that person. I was a huge fan. I still am huge fan of Oklahoma football. Uh, and if they would lose because in college football, one loss, pretty much depending on who you lose to can tank your season like nothing else. Uh, and when I was younger, I was watching Oklahoma football and, uh, and I, 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 I remember exactly what happened. I remember the game when it happened. Uh, Robert Griffin, the third and playing at Baylor, uh, Oklahoma was on the road at Baylor. This is right when, uh, Baylor was becoming more prominent as a football school. Obviously, Baylor was kind of the laughing stock of college football for a long time. For a long time, and then Robert Griffin the third gets there. Art Briles gets there. We don't talk about him very much. Um, but Robert Griffin the third gets there, and Oklahoma's playing uh, Robert Griffin the third and Baylor. 
And Baylor goes on. I think Oklahoma just taking the lead. And uh, in the fourth quarter, in the waning seconds of the fourth quarter, Oklahoma had like a four-point lead. Robert Griffin III finds a wide receiver in the back right end zone. Back right corner of the end zone hits him with just a perfect, a perfect pass in the corner of the end zone. And Baylor goes on to win the game. And that touchdown leads to gives them the lead with like 13 seconds left or something like that. And the game's essentially over. And I remember being so angry because I was like, Baylor, Oklahoma football, we're storied. Okay, we're a, we're a storied college football. We, we are one of the founding Power Five fathers of college football, and we just lost to Baylor, and that was kind of what was running through my mind. And I put a hole right in my wall. I put a hole in my wall, and it was at that point. That was the moment where I was like, I'm taking this too seriously. And I was a kid back then. I was like 14. I was like about 14, 15, probably, something like that. And uh, I, I just I punched I punched the wall, and it broke the wall a little bit, a little bit of the drywall. And uh, And at that point, I was like, I don't need to be taking this this seriously. Like it doesn't make you, you're going to lose. Okay. Baylor was good at the time. They only got better from there. Uh, well, I mean, Robert Griffin, the third left, he won the Heisman and then he left. So, you know, maybe not only got better from there, but they've continued to be a very good program. Uh, and, uh, and at that point I was like, you know, I just, it does not need to be that serious. It's football. It's a game. You know, if you're going to get angry, go outside or something, take some deep breaths, uh, punch your bed. If you're going to punch anything, just punch your bed. Nothing's going to happen to your bed. You can punch your bed. No big deal. You're going to slam your hands down on your bed. That sort of thing. No big deal. I've, I've done that before, but you know, don't punch things that are breakable. Okay. Just punch a bed, punch a pillow, scream into a pillow, that sort of thing. Just make it look, just don't break things is the big thing. And now I, we saw a lot of that this weekend, especially Cowboys fans. They're breaking there. I, I could not believe I saw somebody walking around with a Samsung, like 48 inch 4k TV that they just put a hole in it. And I was like, Oh, no way did you put a hole. I don't care what your financial situation is. If you're putting a hole in a Samsung 48 inch 4k television, you need to rethink what you're doing there. Okay. Cause that's, that is, that is an expensive piece of equipment. Okay. That is an expensive piece of hardware that you're going to have to rebuy. And that no matter how hard you punched, I don't care if you put a hole through it. That was super cool looking. Like you looked like Canelo Alvarez putting a hole through that television. Not worth it. No story would be worth Nothing makes you look dumber than breaking a piece of hardware electronics uh, after one of your teams loses or loses in a big game. I, I don't care who you are. You should just never do that. Just don't just don't break things. It's pretty simple. Don't break things, especially televisions. OK, because they can get very expensive. We're going to talk more about that Cowboys game, though, a little bit later in the final drive. Just the whole thing was just I was, it was awesome. It was great. You know, it was so much fun to watch. Just in terms of there would should be no better there was no better way for that game to end for the Cowboys and Mike McCarthy and just the game that Dak Prescott was having for Jerry Jones. Just no better way for that game, for that season to end than the way it did. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Okay. We're gonna talk more about that game entirely in a little bit. We're gonna start with uh the big game that was the earlier game. I think that was was a Sunday game? Was this the Sunday game? I can't remember. The, all the, the weekend days kind of mend. They mold together for me. I believe this was the Saturday game, actually. It was the Saturday game. The Bengals, they dominated the Bills, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to all the local Bills fans. Uh, I'm sorry to all the local Josh Allen fans. He did not play. He didn't play terrible, but he didn't play. Uh, he didn't play necessarily very good either. I think I can. I think I can say that uh, pretty confidently. Uh, he ended with a, a total EPA of 1.6 EPA is expected points added. Uh, but Joe Burrow, that guy's cooking. That guy, I think. I think we can safely say at this point, Patrick Mahomes, best quarterback in the country, or best quarterback in the league, no doubt in my mind. Period. Cut and dry. 
I think Joe Burrow is starting to knock on the door, though, of like the same tier as Patrick Mahomes. Uh, I think Josh Allen, a little bit turn, a little bit too turnover prone. He was a little wild with the ball this year. He was a little gunslinger-esque uh, with this uh, this season. And Joe Burrow, he goes in there, goes into Buffalo, just cool as a cucumber. We all saw the clip before the game where he was throwing the football, and he does a little spin, and it's in slow motion, and he just looks so cool. Uh, he's the coolest dude on planet Earth whenever he is playing the game of football. Nobody looks cooler playing the game. And uh, he goes out there, he just dominated. 16.7 total EPA, 0.39 EPA per play, which is very, very good. Josh Allen had 0.03 EPA per play. Uh, They had 85.7% of all series, 35 series total, 35 total series. They had a 85.7% series conversion rate, which is the rate at which a series starts on first down and earns a new first down or touchdown on that series. They had an 85% series conversion rate against the Buffalo Bills, which is very, very good. And a 90.9% series conversion rate on a series that started with a pass. 22 of those series started with a pass. So 90% of the time they started a series with a pass from Joe Burrow. Uh, It was ending with at least another first down or a touchdown in that series. Truly insane. If you go look at all the EPA numbers, they didn't have a single they had one one negative EPA per play section, and that was late rushes on third and fourth fourth downs. But they only had four plays on that uh, of that type all game. Uh, the rest of them are green numbers. They're all very good numbers. Point two seven on all plays in EPA per play. They had point four two EPA per play on passes and point uh, point ten on early rushes on first and second down. They were getting whatever they wanted on the ground. And uh, Joe Mixon, Samaje Pirine both had pretty solid games. Samaje Pirine, or excuse me, Joe Mixon had twenty attempts. 105 yards, one touchdown. Uh, Samaj P. Ryan, who was the backup, he's kind of the bludgeoning guy, whereas Joe Mixon's more of the uh, more of the more of the spin move, the juke move guy. Samaj P. Ryan is just going to run over you. Uh, seven attempts, 33 yards from Samaj. He was a good backup for Joe Mixon when he had to come out, uh, but Joe Mixon was the star on the on the ground. 20 attempts, 105 yards, and a touchdown. It was uh, a masterful performance from the Bills. Um, I think we can, or excuse me, from the Bengals, not the Bills. Uh, I think we can start having this conversation again, and a lot of people are starting to have this conversation as of this week. Buffalo, it's not too late. They're starting to remake. Uh, they're starting to draw up uh, uh, blueprints for remaking the stadium, obviously redoing the stadium in that area uh, because that stadium, by the way, that stadium, not a pretty stadium. I'll be honest with you. You can definitely tell it's dated just in terms of, like I've never been there, but obviously you can tur- you can tell from the the just the looking at it from the outside down from the camera down it just does not look like a very it's not pleasing on the eyes which makes i mean just in terms it kind of fits the buffalo mantra you know they're not gonna they're not about the glitz and glamour they're just about the hard nose we're gonna get stuff done which is funny because their team the buffalo bills are not necessarily built that way uh they're very much a high-flying offense they don't have a good run game uh their run game basically consists of josh allen uh finding a way to scramble for a first down and that is the most effective run game that they have, more or less. Uh, especially this past uh, this past against the Bengals, it was Josh Allen had the highest graded rushing performance out of the running backs in the backfield for Buffalo. He had four attempts for twenty six yards and a touchdown. Devin Singletary, the the primary running back, had six attempts for twenty four yards. That's the run game. They're not built for the hard nosed, gritty football. Josh Allen is going to be trying to fling the ball downfield to his wide receivers, Gabe Davis. Uh, Stefan Diggs, uh, Dawson Knox down the field is tight end as well. He's going to try to fling the ball downfield, and sometimes that leads to interceptions, which is something that we've seen him do all season long into tight coverage that has fooled him or something like that, and he's thrown picks that way, unfortunately. But uh, 
and I think I think it all amounts to this. And I'll be honest with you, Bills fans, this is going to upset you. And I apologize. I'm not the only one with this take, though. I'm not the only one with this take so far this year. I think it's time to start talking about building the dome. Okay, I know Bills fans aren't going to like it. Now, before you yell at me, okay, I understand you're not going to like it, and I get it. Your your entire mantra is around being, you know, the snow guys, you know, the guys that jump through the the tables, you know, that you don't wear the shirts at the games and stuff like that. I get it. Okay, I understand. Listen, I'm from Wyoming. Okay, I get it. That's what Wyoming does all the time. They're actually Wyoming, to be fair, is actually more practically built for the outdoor games than the Buffalo Bills, to be honest with you. Not saying they're better, but I'm just saying they're more practically built for snow and hard weather and that sort of thing than the Buffalo Bills. But that's the reasoning. If you're going to have Josh Allen, if you're going to sign him to an an insane contract, which they they should, they should not move on from Josh Allen. They should definitely keep Josh Allen, obviously, sign him to an insane deal like they did with Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs did with Patrick Mahomes, sign him to a deal like that, keep him there. But if you're going to do that, let's start talking about the dome, okay? You're going to get so much more out of this offense if you're the Buffalo Bills, if you build the team, build the dome around the team, if that makes sense. Okay, it's probably not going to happen in the next few years. Hell, it's probably not going to happen in the next 10 years. But if Josh Allen is still there, you guys should be playing in a dome. And if this offense is built this way, they should be playing in a dome. Unless they get some ground and pound guy, some ground and unless, you know, Doug McDermott starts to develop some sort of different offensive scheme uh, than what they're running right now. This team is not going to succeed in those weather conditions. And it, 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 almost hurts them in January more so than it does in August or September. Obviously we saw how good this team looked like at the very beginning of the season. When the weather is beautiful, when the weather is nice out, they're able to sling the ball wherever they want to. They're getting open. Uh, Wide receivers are getting open because they have good footing on the ground and stuff like that. And you're getting more time in the pocket. If you're Josh Allen, it's also easier to scramble. If you're Josh Allen outside of the pocket when it's nice out, obviously, but if you're the Bengals coming into this game and you see the crappy weather that's out and you are, you're, you're seething. And in a good way, you are you're chomping at the bit to go out and play that game because you just the, the weather has eliminated, has completely eliminated all the all, all the advantages that the Bills have on their offensive side of the ball. They are not going to be able to protect as long to get for for Dawson Knox for Stephon Diggs to get open as often because a lot of those routes that he's running are longer routes. And in snow like conditions, it's harder for those routes to develop because you don't have the footing that you have on, on a normal day in, in Buffalo or wherever in August and September, it's just harder for that offense to run effectively in the weather that they're playing. And you put that in a dome. Honestly, if you were the bills, if you got to conference championship against Kansas city, that'd be perfect. That'd be perfect for you guys because it was on a neutral site. You would have been playing in Atlanta. That would have been the perfect game for the Buffalo Bills. That would have been set up so perfectly for them because they are the perfect team to play in that condition. High flying. They love to throw the ball downfield more than anybody. I believe Josh Allen's a dot average depth of target in this game was like 11.6 or something like that. If I remember reading that correctly, I'm looking at it right now. His 11, his, his average depth of target was 11.1 in this game. He didn't play necessarily bad by any means. He was 25 of 42, 265 yards and an interception. Not terrible, uh, but not effective enough. That a lot of those throws that he was throwing were off, off, uh, offline as well. And that could have just been because, in terms of his incompletions, that could have been because of routes that were poorly run because of the snow and stuff like that. It's possible any of those answers. But it's also, the other thing they have to think about is they don't have the effective run game to run in a game like this at all. They just... They do not have a good enough run game to do this. Almost none of their uh, none of their running backs had a positive EPA per play. Devin Singletary is a point 
Uh, James Cook was a .36, which is dreadful. Uh, they only had successful, a successful conversion rate on rush plays of 47%, which is fine. It's not great, uh, but it's fine it can, compared to the Bengals. They had like a 50% successful conversion rate on rush plays. So it's not terrible, but it's not great either. Uh, and none of their running backs can, you know, Devin Singletary, James Cook, they're not on the same level as Joe Mixon. And uh, Samaj Pirine is the perfect back to complement uh, Joe Mixon. So it's kind of a different scheme that you're looking for if you're the Bills in that situation, which gives you a lot to think about in those games. And um, if you're the Bills, if you're not going to build the dome, fair enough. I mean, obviously, they're not going to build the dome in in enough time. And they also, really quickly, they also only started five drives with a rush with a rush play, uh, with a running play. Sixty percent of and a sixty percent conversion rate, successful successful conversion rate on those five plays, which is also. Not good. That, that's bad. In entirely bad. Uh, their success, their series success on twenty five total series was seventy two percent, which is also not great. Um, so, if you're the Bills, you're not going to build the dome. Obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm partially kidding, but if they can build the dome, let's I mean, just do it. If you're not going to change the way this offense is run, then you know, build the dome. You're going to need to build the dome to get the most, the most, the absolute most out of Josh Allen uh, in, uh, in in Buffalo. But if you're not going to be able to build the dome. You're going to have to find a different way to run this team. Maybe you could even switch it halfway through the season or something like that. Once it starts getting colder out, you switch the way that you're running. I mean, this is probably not even theoretically possible because I don't, I'm not a football coach. I'm not developing playbooks and stuff like that. I don't know how that works. But if you wanted to, you would develop some sort of more power, power-heavy run game that would be perfect for the environment that you're playing in. It's just not an effective way to play the game of football in Buffalo with a guy like Josh Allen. And it's not Josh Allen's fault, obviously. He's doing the most with what he has. Um, and it's just not an effective way to play the game in Buffalo is being this gunslinging team that's finding the way, finding a way to throw the ball downfield as much as Josh Allen. is. at 11.1 average depth of target is absurd. That is so, so high for a game in January where it is snowing most of the game. Uh, and and it didn't you know it didn't work out as effectively as they would have liked it obviously and it ended up losing they ended up losing the game and the other thing was the Bengals were able to seize I mean not seize is probably the wrong word they were able to more effectively complete passes in the shorter part of the field whereas Josh Allen and the Bills were looking for those more intermediate throws throughout the entire game and um Josh Allen and the Bills, or excuse me, uh, Joe Burrow and the Bills, they were getting a lot of yards after catch on those short intermediate throws. Just looking at these uh, these passing charts right now, Joe Burrow passed short to the left to Joe Mixon uh, at the Buffalo 13 for five yards. Uh, passed short left to Jamar Chase to, for eight yards. Passed short left to Samaj Piran for four yards. Uh, Hayden Hurst ran out of the backfield for 13 yards. Uh, Jamar Chase to Buffalo six for eight yards. And it goes on and on and on. Even on the right side, it's the same thing. Uh, they were throwing short passes out of the backfield. Jamar Chase again to the right side for 11 yards. They were getting a ton of yards after catch on a lot of those short passes. Joe Mixon, uh, another one, pushed out of bounds at the 50 for 13 yards after a, poor, a short pass to the right behind the line of scrimmage. They were getting a ton of yards after the catch after the game. And I don't know if it was because the Bills were ending up, just ended up playing softer coverage for most of the game, which allowed uh, allowed the blockers to get out front in these short passing games and these short pass attempts with Joe Mixon and Jamar Chase and these slant plays. Uh, that were, you know, below five yards and stuff. So it, it, it was kind of a, the Bengals came in and they ran a more effective offense for the weather conditions and it matched up poorly against the Bills, which led to the Bengals essentially dominating this game. I mean, this game was over by the time it was, 
it wasn't over by the time it was 14 nothing but by the time they scored uh by the time they scored what 20 by the time it was 24 to 10 with like a minute left in the third quarter that game felt more or less over to be honest with you, just because of how uh poorly the offense was running for the bills and that's partially thanks to uh the the uh the, the defense that Lou Anarumo was drawing drawing up uh for the Bengals he was crafting a masterpiece for the Bengals on the defensive side he was disguising blitzes he ran a lot of he was disguising his pressures. He was running a lot of simulated pressures and stuff like that with blitzes and disguises. Mike Hilton, the cornerback, Mike Hilton had three pressures and he had one where I, I was I could not believe what I was seeing. If you go and watch the the tape back again, he came from the op, I mean he was essentially five yards off the line of scrimmage and he came from the opposite side of the other numbers. It was on the left side hash and Hilton was on the other hash, basically five yards off the line of scrimmage and he cornerback blitzed from there. And he was able to get to Josh Allen and, and interrupt the play. It was one of the more key plays in the game. And uh, other than that, Mike Hilton had another two pressures in the game as well. It was a fantastic game for their pass rush in general. Uh, and Lou Anarumo, or Lou Anarumo, excuse me, was was masterful. He he had a fantastic game calling plays. I was I, I was so not not necessarily stunned, but I was so surprised at how effectively they were just kind of picking apart. The uh, the Buffalo Bills, the Buffalo Bills offensive line, they had a total of 28 pressures, uh, 18 quarterback hurries, nine hits and one sack, only one sack total, uh, but nine hurries, 28 total pressures is a fantastic day. Whereas the injured, the injured Cincinnati Bengals offensive or offensive line held up pretty dang well, to be honest with you, 16 pressures against uh, for the Bills defensive line, 16 pressures, one sack, one hit and 14 hurries throughout the game. The uh, the team that we thought was going to have a better offensive line coming into the game played a lot more a lot more like the team that was more injured in the uh, in the Buffalo Bills and the Bengals they just they picked it apart man they picked apart the Buffalo Bills whatever they wanted to do whatever the Buffalo Bills were looking to do it looked like Josh Allen was seeing ghosts out there and they were and they they were disguising pressures really well and blitzes really well they're playing a lot of too high safety which uh, is bad for obviously the offense that Buffalo wants to run with a lot of their deep balls that they're trying to throw. And um, it just caused problems all game for the Buffalo Bills. It was a very impressive performance from the Cincinnati Bengals. And I don't think, I mean, especially given how Patrick Mahomes looked, um, I mean, he got hurt, obviously, and that that's a big deal as well. We're going to have to talk about it. That's going to be something that's going to be evaluated. I think they are now, the Bengals are now, I think the last time I checked, they were two-point favorites. And I have to imagine that's in part because Patrick Mahomes is hurt in their divisional matchup against the Jaguars, which we'll talk about right now. So the, the Bengals move on against the Bills. They beat the Bills, so we'll, and this is who they'll be playing. They'll be playing the Chiefs. As the Chiefs, they held off the Jaguars. But Patrick Mahomes gets hurt. He still has a very solid game, uh, but he gets hurt. And uh, something that the Bengals will more than likely seize on, uh, not more than likely, almost certainly seize on, uh, will be the injury status of Patrick Mahomes. And if he does... As reports are saying, he does have a high ankle sprain, which is not something that it's very easy to come back on. And I know the the popular thing is this, you know, they give him the old magical shot, which is the NFL, the NFL, the NFL serum that cures everything, whatever they have down there. I'm I'm convinced will can 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 cure any sort of disease or ailment, uh, and then guys just come out and play. I don't know how effective that's going to be uh, with a high ankle sprain. We'll see if he's just out there running again like it's nothing. Then we know that. The NFL has some sort of cure-all ailment that we are unaware of, but we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, but let's talk about this game first. Let's talk about their matchup against the Jags. Jags, they didn't play terrible, to be honest with you. Uh, they had a beautiful little backdoor cover. I was like, oh, just chef's kiss of a backdoor cover. You know what they say, and I've said it time and time again here 
on this program, on this program, as they say. Good teams win. I want you guys to say it with me. Good teams win. Great teams cover. That is the quote. KC was favored by 10 in this game. Jaguars get a nice, just a perfect little backdoor cover. They score with, uh, what was the time left? They score with a kick a field goal through with 30 seconds left to go to make it 27 to 10. And uh, yeah, they probably uh, just to try to get the onside the onside kick, I guess. And I was like, "Thank you, Doug Peterson. Obviously, he is a betting man, and he knows how important this is." Uh, it was uh, favored by ten, the closing line. And guess what? Twenty-seven to ten. That means the Jacksonville Jaguars cover. So beautiful little backdoor cover. That means they're a great team. Congrats to the Jags. You're officially a great team. They didn't play bad, all in all. To be serious, they didn't really play bad. Uh, it's just the fact that they ran into a buzzsaw in uh, Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, Patrick Mahomes finished the day at quarterback with a .28 EPA per play, 9.2 total EPA, which is very good. A very subpar uh, average depth of target, to be honest with you. Only 5.5 average depth of target. They're playing a little bit to their strengths, obviously. Travis Kelsey had a day at tight end. I mean, the guy was, uh, he, I thought, we, I think we all thought once, once uh, Tyree Kill left, once he was traded to the Miami Dolphins, that this team was going to lose a step or so. Uh, but that is incorrect. Just for whatever reason, Travis Kelsey said, no, I can just put it on my back and I'll carry it the rest of the way. And he has, he had 17 targets in this game, 14 receptions, 98 yards, two tutties. That's all they needed. They didn't need the the super long down the field passes that they're used to with, uh, with what they used to have with Tyree Kill. And they haven't needed that. They've evolved very effectively without Tyree Kill. It was a lot of deep bombs down the field when they did have Tyree Kill, and now they've kind of turned into a very effective intermediate team uh, in terms of passing the ball. And uh, again, Jaguars did not necessarily play very bad. They had a very bad uh, early pass uh, EPA per play point, uh, point negative point eighteen, which is not good on uh, early pass downs. But other than that, they were pretty effective with the ball on offense. Early rushes led to a uh, .21 EPA per play and, ex- and a successful conversion rate of 56%. Uh, late rushes had 1.75. They only had one late rush. A 1.75 EPA per play, a 100% successful conversion rate. Just one, obviously, one play, but again, that, that's a big play. Uh, and then .30 overall EPA play, EPA per play and a 59% successful conversion rate on rushes in throughout the entire day. And uh, Trevor uh, Travis Etienne had a very solid game. Jim Michael Hasty had a pretty solid game as well. Uh, it was a pretty deep, like I said, it was a decent game from the Jaguars. It wasn't like complete total dismantling by the Chiefs or anything like that. The game was kind of out of reach towards the end of the game. Again, a backdoor cover. It was pretty much over halfway through the fourth quarter, essentially, it felt like. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean that they played poorly. Uh, like I said, the rushing game, Etienne, Etienne had uh, 10 rushes, 62 yards, and a touchdown. Michael Hasty had four rushes for 36 yards. Uh, it wasn't like they were playing poorly or anything like that, a complete domination or anything like that. Jaguars, in all honesty, I'll be honest with you, this might upset some people, but Jaguars played better than the Bills this weekend in terms of with their matchup. Uh, They were a couple drops away. Uh, I mean, Christian Kirk had that one play at the beginning of the game, towards the beginning of the game, where he just dropped a wide-open pass. Uh, Not necessarily, I mean, drops probably a strong where he had to die for it, but if he catches that, they're on the whatever it was, like the seven-yard line uh, on in goal to go, and who knows what happens in that situation. They go on a score there. Um, and I think just overall, they had a more effective game plan for the team that they were playing up against uh, with a decent run game, and they were able to win that part of the that part of the game. Trevor Lawrence didn't play fantastic. He wasn't terrible, but he didn't play fantastic. He had 24-39, 217 yards and a touchdown, uh, a 74.4 rating, quarterback rating overall. And how about... Let's just hold on really quickly. Let's let's slow down for a second. Patrick Mahomes goes out. He gets hurt. He goes out of the game for a little bit. 
Chad Henney comes in on his own two-yard line. We're all a little nervous. Every Chiefs fan in the world, I'm not a Chiefs fan, but every Chiefs fan in the world is a little nervous, okay? It's Chad Hans, the backup quarterback. You're like, okay, I'm a little scared now. Uh, Chad, just don't get a safety, okay? You know what he does? He says, yes, sir, won't get a safety. How about a 98-yard drive down the field for a nice little touchdown? And that's what he does. Not an incredible display of quarterbacking, I'll be honest with you. Five for seven, 23 yards, 3.3 yards per attempt. Not not uh, stunning or anything like that, but he did throw the touchdown pass to Travis Kelty. Uh, and also Isaiah Pacheco was the one that broke off a huge run there. I think he had like a 35-plus yard run there in the middle of it. And that was more or less his swan song for the day. He says, you know what? I'm done. I don't need to do this anymore. Patrick Mahomes is like, I'm good. I'll go back out there. No problem. And I don't know if he needed to. You know, Chad, why not? Just leave him out there and let him sling it. You know? I'm joking, by the way. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes, if he's, if he's good enough to play, he should be out there. And he did. He had Patrick Mahomes came back out. Played well enough to win the game. Uh, 22 for 30, 195 yards, two touchdowns for uh, for Patrick Mahomes. Still, still a solid day from Patrick Mahomes. But Chad Henney, I mean, that was, I I was very impressed. I was like, whoa. I mean, not I, very impressed is probably a strong word. But to go 98 yards is no easy feat. Uh, it was the longest drive in Chiefs postseason history. So, I mean, that's saying something. Congrats to Chad Henney. Hey, you know what? Swan song that he's going to go back to the bench. Not play again for another 15 weeks and then come back out and do it one more time. That's what that's the the epitome of a backup quarterback in the NFL. Um, yeah, so that's that game. Again, Jaguars played pretty good. Uh, I would say they just ran up against a much better team at a spend, uh, essentially every position on the field. The Chiefs are probably better than the Jaguars, uh, no matter which way you look at. It. Maybe maybe uh, the the Jaguars are a little bit better at like the linebacker position or the the defensive front, but even then, I think we're probably pushing it. Um, and really, again, they didn't play bad by any means. I think they probably played better against Kansas City than the Bills played against the Bengals, if that makes sense. We're comparing apples to oranges at that point. Uh, but it just felt like the Jaguars at least had a better game plan for this game than the Bills had a game plan for the Bengals in their matchup. So that's their AFC championship. That's what's coming up. Bengals-Chiefs, probably the best matchup we can get for an AFC championship, in my opinion. The Bengals versus the Chiefs. By the way, if we would have gotten the Bills and the Chiefs, we had the overtime rules changed since last year and all that jazz to try to get back to the situation where they were in the AFC Championship game. And I I thought at the time the overtime rule changing was stupid. I thought it was really dumb. I thought it was a complete overreaction. I did not think we needed to change it whatsoever. And I'm waiting for the moment in this playoffs, in these playoffs, where we have, and essentially the rule is now, each team gets a chance to score a touchdown, basically. So if the, the Chiefs go down and score a touchdown, then the Bill or whoever, the, the Bengals would get the ball back at, with a chance to score a touchdown. If they score a touchdown, then it goes into sudden death, essentially. And I'm waiting for the moment. I'm waiting for the moment that both teams score a touchdown, okay, in overtime. So we're still tied or whatever up to the point. And then the next team that gets the ball just drives down and kicks a field goal. And then we're all the way back at square one where we're like, wait a minute, that's just the original overtime rules all over again. And I'm waiting for that because we're going to have that moment in like one of these playoff games, in this conference game, in this conference championship game, or God forbid the Super Bowl because there will be an eruption of anger if that happens um, where where both teams just end up scoring touchdowns at the very beginning. And we're like, okay, we're both even. And then the next team that has the, the third possession in overtime, the next team that has the ball, just goes down to the 45, the 35-yard line, and just kicks the field goal. Doesn't have to worry about getting into the end zone. Kicks the field goal, we're good, and we're just right back at square one having this argument over again. I thought the original rule was fine. I thought it was perfect. I didn't think it really mattered that much, to be honest with you. Sure, you had, uh, if you if you win the coin toss, you get a, a much higher probability to win the game, obviously. But 
you also have it's not like they're just the Chiefs are just driving down without or whoever driving down with the ball without playing against an effective defense or anything like that. That's just it just doesn't make any sense. I I, I don't like the fact that we were reactionary in that sense. I thought it was so dumb. And now we're just to the point where we're back at square one because we're going to have some game one off of a game winning field goal on their own on the on the opposing 35 yard line on a second and 10. Like, that's just how a game is going to end now, unfortunately. There's nothing we can do to change that rule that's going to make it any better than the, how it was before. In my opinion, I don't think there's any way we can change that to make it better. It's just, it was a dumb rule change. It was super reactionary. And uh, here we are. And we're going to get it in. I can feel it. We're going to get it in one of these conference championships or we're going to get it in the Super Bowl, God forbid. And there's going to be a ton of angry fans. And then we're just going to change it again because it's just, a, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to me. It should be sudden. If they're going to do it that way, it should be sudden death. But you have to score a touchdown again. So both teams get the ball no matter what. And then whoever scores a touchdown first wins the game. That's how it should be. Not not any point any point after this point scores a touchdown, right? Or uh, any point after this point wins the game. It should be any any touchdown after the first two touchdowns of overtime wins the game. That's how it should be, in my opinion. Uh, that's that's how that that's the perfect way to do it, I think. Um but anyways, sorry, it went off on a tangent there for overtime rules. I just thought we changed that back in the day, and it was so I just thought it was so reactionary. We didn't need to do that, and now here we are. We're back at square one. If that if that ends up happening, where both teams score and then end up kicking a, whoever gets the, the the third time gets gets to kick a field goal and wins the game essentially. Uh, okay, the Eagle. This one's going to be quick. Uh, the, moving over to the NFC, the Eagles completely dismantled the Giants. Uh, they the Eagles are so deep on the defensive side of the ball. I just they especially on the line on the defensive line. It felt like I saw a new person out on the interior defensive line or even on the edge where they had a new guy rushing and it did not matter whatsoever. Uh, they the person was getting pressure on the quarterback or they were getting to the quarterback for a sack or something like that. I was like, holy cow, this team is deeper than a than than the the well the well that Bruce Wayne fell in Batman Begins. So they're deeper than that. Okay, they, they can just throw whoever they want out there on the defensive line. And for whatever reason, every single defensive line that they've signed uh, has been effective at being a good pass rusher or a good run stopper. It is truly absurd. And uh, they were fantastic this weekend. Just entire. I mean, obviously, you know, went 38 to seven without being completely dominant on both sides of the ball. But their defense, especially uh, especially the defensive line, 26 pressures, five sacks total, 17, 17 hurries, uh, four QB hits total uh, on five sacks as well. So an unreal game from the defensive line and the defense on uh, on the Philadelphia Eagles, and not not the, not not only that, their offensive line might be even better. To be honest with you, because they are just consistently dominant on that side of the ball as well. They can do whatever they want in the run game. They had a absurd run game. They had about point uh, a point four zero EPA per play when they ran the ball, and a sixty two successful conversion rate. When they ran the ball, 62% successful conversion rate when they ran the ball and on late downs as well on third and fourth down when they had to run the ball, 71% successful conversion rate that's on 14 plays, 71% successful conversion rate and a 0.98 EPA per play in unbelievable, uh, an unbelievable day at the office for the Eagles, a team that loves to run the football. Obviously, they also had a 90.5% uh, success rate overall when they started a series with a rush on 21 21 drives that started with a rush or series that started with a rush and a 90.5 percent success rate which again it's the rate at which a series starting on first down earns a new first down or a touchdown on that series so they converted another first down or scored a touchdown on 90.5 percent of those 21 series that started with a rush an unreal day 
from the offense and the offensive line is a big, uh, a big, uh, a big proponent to that. Obviously uh, they're uh, obviously their running backs are a huge proponent to that. Their running backs went nutso in this game. They got, they basically can go three deep with their running backs and have maybe a slight difference, a slight drop off, but it didn't seem like it in this game, Kenneth Gainwell, 12 attempts, 112 yards, one touchdown. Boston Scott, six attempts, 32 yards, one touchdown. Jalen Hurts himself got into the action, eight attempts, 34 yards and a touchdown. The only one that maybe slipped up, I, I mean, just a, a tad. I mean, this is very, very minimal in terms of if he slipped up a little bit uh, was Miles Sanders. Miles Sanders, he had 17 attempts, uh, 17 attempts for 90 yards, only a 5.3 yards per average. But again, a very good day. He's the only one that didn't score a touchdown. Uh, they had 268 yards on the ground total against the Giants and another quick stat for you on this Eagles team. Uh, they are, uh, they were the, they allowed the second lowest pressure rate allowed in a postseason game in the history of the pro football focus era. So dating back to, I think it was like 2013, 2014, something like that a long time ago when PFF started tracking this stuff, uh, they had the second lowest pressure rate allowed by an offensive line uh, during the postseason. So an unbelievable game from the Eagles, complete domination. Another fun fact for you, they had this exact same score in this, I don't think it was the exact same round, but this exact same score in a, another playoff game. This was 2018, back in 2018 when they beat the Vikings 38-7. to We don't talk about that game, but I thought that was funny. It landed on the same exact day, and it's the same exact score. Not the same exact round. That was in the conference championship game, but same score, same date, four years apart or whatever it was, five years apart. So how about that? Um, another quick thing, another quick note about their offensive line. Again, uh, the lowest graded uh, offensive lineman that they had on their group was Isaac Sumalo. I think that's how you say it. Excuse me. Uh, he's the right guard for them, and he had a 61 overall offensive grade. Not great, not terrible either. A 70.2 pass blocking grade from PFF. The rest of them, though, were all essentially uh, 75 or above offensive grades. Truly an unreal day. And uh, 75 or 80 above on pass blocking grades. A truly bonkers day from the defense or the offensive line of, of Philadelphia and against a decent defensive line in uh, in New York as well. So it's not like they were a bad, a ba- playing a bad team or anything like that in terms of, in terms of their defensive line. But I, I just, I did not, I mean, I, I don't want to say I didn't see that coming, but maybe not pure domination the way that it was. I mean, it looked like, the Giants were completely lost in this game. Like they had no idea what they were doing there and they kind of played that way. They were not effective whatsoever on uh, essentially anything that they were trying to do that entire game. Daniel Jones played bad. Uh, he had a 0.38 EPA, a negative 0.38 EPA per play and a total EPA of negative 14.6. Uh, they had 21 series total and a series conversion rate of 61.9%, which is not good compared to the, compare that to the Eagles who had an 86.7% series conversion rate overall in 30 total plays versus the Giants 21 or excuse me series total 21 total series uh they had 61.9% where the Eagles had an 86.7%. So the Giants they really couldn't do anything. The only thing they were somewhat effective at uh was their rush. They had a 0.15 EPA per play on rush on, on rushing attempts uh and they had 47 success rate, 47% successful rate on rushing plays. So not not terrible, not great, but definitely compared to the rest of this uh, this this plot here, this this graph that they have here, it was really the only thing that they had going for them that was remotely okay, I guess is what you could say. Um, so Eagles move on. They're in the NFC Championship again, and then we get to the 49ers taking on the Cowboys in the late game on Sunday. And this game, it gave us everything. It gave us really everything. We got talking points that we wanted. We we were able to talk about the next day that were a lot of fun. It gave us uh, it gave us emotional moments. It gave us. I mean, this game wasn't necessarily 
the funnest game to watch if you're an offensive person and wasn't the funnest thing to watch in the world. Neither neither quarterback played very uh, effectively or very well at all. Uh, but I mean, Brock Purdy was, or yeah, Brock Purdy was was the better of the two. I would say for sure. Um, Dak Prescott had a bad game. I think we could say. I don't know. I, I don't want to go out and out too far and say it was the the worst game of the weekend. I think Daniel Jones probably had a worse game overall. Uh, but it was a bad game, especially following up this game with the game that he had on uh, against the Bucks just the week prior. Uh, he was just lost in this game. He had no idea what he was looking for, no idea what he was looking at. Uh, he had a point, a point, a negative point one EPA per play in this game and a four negative 4.3 total EPA. Uh, he was not very good at all. He had a bad successful conversion rate uh, on series that started with a pass, a 60%, 60% series conversion rate on uh, a series that started with fat uh, with a pass. So 15 total series started with pass and Brett Purdy wasn't, that much better. I mean, he was a little bit better. He had 0 .9, 0 .09 EPA per play towards the end of the uh, when it was all said and done. The 3.2 total EPA and average depth of target in 8.5. Dak Prescott and average average depth of target of 8.2. Completion point uh, a completion percentage over expected though. Brock Purdy was definitely a lot better. 4.4 percent of completion percentage over expected, which is pretty solid. Dak Prescott had a negative 2.4 uh, completion point completion percentage over expecting not very good there and Dak Prescott he was just he was he looked lost I mean there were there were moments where he looked like especially towards the end in the, the last series I made a note uh in that very last series it looked like so there was the, the the play where he is basically in his own end zone it was like you know the clock was ticking down the game was practically over they had no timeouts up to this point you know clock was ticking down under a minute and uh he was rolling out to his right looking for a guy that was open and he had a lineman just running right at him and I and the lineman, if he wraps up, he just kind of the lineman just kind of bounces off of him. He doesn't try to wrap up or anything like that. Just tries to knock him over. It looked like, and uh, it didn't end up working. He basically Dak Prescott kind of just bounces off of him. But in that moment, it looked like Dak Prescott could not see the lineman. Like that's how oblivious it looked like in that moment. He was to the lineman that was approaching him. And I, I made the note. I was like, is he? Is like his? Is his eyes okay? Because <laughs> I was like, there is no way he didn't see this. 300 pound dude or whatever 285 pound dude sprinting at him to try to knock him back into the end zone for a safety and that's just what it looked like like Dak Prescott didn't even see him until the very last second and then he just kind of bounces off of him tries to throw the ball away and effectively throws the ball away uh it was weird I uh, Dak Prescott just he looked out of sorts uh even on the sideline when they would show him sitting down just looking at, you know, the the computer or, you know, the, the tablet or whatever, and then on the ground or whatever, if he was just like staring, he would be like staring off into the distance, you know, that that sort of thing, then that a thousand yard stare, if you will. And that's kind of what it looked like the, the 49ers had done to him. He finished 23 for 37, 206 yards, a touchdown and two interceptions, uh, two bad interceptions too. Uh, he probably could have had three or four as well. I, looking, I can, I take, I'm taking a look at his, uh, his, his turnover worthy plays as well. I can look at that. Uh, according to PF, PFF, he had uh, only the two turnover-worthy plays. So I, I was wrong. Two turnover-worthy plays, two essentially worthy interceptions. Um, he was just not effective. Not effective pretty much at all this entire game. Zero big-time throws, big throws as well. An average depth of target of eight, eight yards down the field. Um, and yeah, he was just... Uh, CeeDee Lamb did his best to get open and kind of carry this team to the promised land. Um, but the rest of... Basically everything else. Tony Pollard got hurt, which hurt them in the rushing attack as well. That did not help whatsoever. Ezekiel Elliott was not effective on the ground either. Ten after Tony Pollard went down, he had ten carries, twenty six yards total after the game, and then Tony Pollard didn't come back. Obviously, 
Uh, I believe he broke his fibula, which is huge news. That is not good for either the Cowboys or Tony Pollard's upcoming free agency. So we'll see what happens to him. Um, but again, Prescott, the worst of the two. I don't know what they do if they... I don't really see a situation in which he or the Cowboys can trade Dak Prescott, which is kind of the rumblings that you're getting out of a lot of the people from that are Dallas fans or something like that. They're looking for a way to get rid of Dak Prescott, which is, I, I don't know what you're going to be able to get in the free agency market or anything like that. If you're the Cowboys, other than somebody that is equivalent, Derek Carr is equivalent uh, to Dak Prescott. I don't think he's better than Dak Prescott by any means. Um, but until 2024, which he signed his four year $160 million contract before the 2020 season. So after the 2024 season, I believe he is a restricted free agent, if I remember correctly, or something like that. Um, the, the the contract details are confusing. I've never been able to read these very effectively. But essentially, he had $66 million guaranteed, or $126 million guaranteed, excuse me, $66 million in a signing bonus, and that runs out uh, after the 2024 season. We'll see what they do. I Again, I, I don't see a situation in which they can trade him unless there is a team that is essentially a quarterback away. But again, he's not effective enough, in my opinion, except in a game against Tampa Bay, I guess, for whatever reason. Um, he's not effective enough to really draw that amount of interest because he's very much in the middle of the pack in terms of quarterback. I think you would be more, more inclined to go and get somebody like Tom Brady at a free agency or something like that, then try to trade for a guy like Dak Prescott, even though Tom Brady is 45 years old or whatever the hell he is, 46 years old or whatever. I would trust Tom Brady on a two year deal more than I would trust Dak Prescott in just the one year deal that he has, uh, you know, the one year remaining on his deal on his deal and then try to resign him, I guess is what I would say. I would rather have Tom Brady for those two years um, for the next two years, 46 for a year, 47 and 48 year old man than Dak Prescott towards the end of his contract, and then obviously the contract that comes after. So I don't know what they're going to do for Dak. I have no idea. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I'm also to the point where it's like, this is the best team that they've had, like top to bottom as in terms of a roster. And if this is the most you're going to get out of this team, there's definitely changes that need to be made. Uh, if you're Jerry Jones, if you're Mike McCarthy, whatever. And they're probably going to end up losing both of their coordinators as well, which will be interesting uh, in, in what they're going to be able to, uh, what they're going to try to do, I guess. Um, and if Kellen Moore is not there, the offensive coordinator for the Cowboys, who knows what's going to happen to Dak at that point, what that's going to change. It could be positive. It could be bad. And if it's bad, then who knows where the, the Cowboys go from there in 2024. Uh, and this is just assuming Kellen Moore gets a job elsewhere. I don't know if he'll get a head coaching job. But he could get an offensive coordinator job somewhere else as well. I don't know why he would leave the Cowboys, but there are plenty of teams that are asking to talk to Kellen Moore in terms of a head coaching job. Dan Quinn has already been a head coach, and he did a fantastic job with the Cowboy defense as well. So he is more than likely getting a head coaching job somewhere else. So he is more than likely gone. We'll see what that does to that defense. And if that defense takes a dip a little bit because of Dan Quinn being gone, then you can pretty much cross out any chance of them making a bigger leap forward in my opinion. And uh, yeah, I, that's just, I, I don't know. The, the Cowboys are stuck in a very interesting spot. Uh, they can, they can't, they could cut, I guess they could cut Dak Prescott, but that's going to leave. I think it's $39 million in dead cap. You don't want to do that. Obviously you can try to trade him, but there's only one year left on his, uh, on his deal as well. So you're basically trading it to a team that needs essentially a quarterback away Maybe somebody like Washington, if they don't sign somebody in free agency or something like that. I don't know. I don't, they're not going to trade in, in division either. So 
uh, it's just it's completely stuck in the air. Uh, the Cowboys are in a really interesting, uh, a bad position to be in right now because you're very much you're in the playoffs. You're in with the good teams, the final eight, if you will, or whatever. But you're still super far away from competing with those top four teams. I would say uh, you're not necessarily close, but you're not as bad as the team like the you know the Vi- I mean the Vikings aren't bad, but not necessarily as much of frauds. <laughs> if you will, as like the Vikings are. So it's kind of in that purgatory situation where it's almost worse to be in that situation than it is to be like a bottom team like the Texans because the Texans or the Bears or whatever, they're going to have hope. I mean, they got Justin Fields. The Bears have Justin Fields. They have the one pick in the draft. They can do whatever they want. Now, all they see is the horizon. All they see is the light on the other side of the tunnel, whereas whereas the Cowboys at this point, now they're very much just searching for what the next step is. And that that's, uh, in my opinion, a worse spot to be in because purgatory there's not there's less of a direction to go if you're in that middling ground if you're in that if you're in the purgatory section there's less of a direction that you feel like you need to take and that's kind of where they're at right now unfortunately so we'll see we'll see what the Cowboys are. by the way that leads to a bigger kind of conversation to be had about the Cowboys this entire game in general uh kind of leads to a bigger conversation that needs to be had about the Cowboys their brand and I think Jerry Jones is okay with this, which is also probably what's frustrating for a lot of Cowboy fans. I don't really know a Cowboy fan that is actually a fan of Jerry Jones being their GM, their owner, their whatever, director of player personnel. And I, I think that, in, in my mind, Jerry Jones, if he, if the brand is still, quote-unquote, America's team, if they are making the, are they still, if they're still the most valuable sporting, uh, sporting thing piece of sporting uh, business in the world of sports. They're still the most valuable piece of sports in the world. I don't know how frustrated Jerry Jones is with that, uh, even if they aren't winning Super Bowls, if they haven't done anything effectively in the last 30 years. But they're still America's team. They're the most valuable sports product on planet Earth, the Dallas Cowboys are. And Jerry Jones, to me, feels like it's kind. Of, he's kind of okay with that. He says he wants to win, obviously, but if he wanted to win, Super, if he wanted to win, uh, if he actually wanted to take it to the next level, he wouldn't hire guys like Mike McCarthy. He wouldn't stuck with Jason Garrett for five years too long, that sort of thing. I don't know how much he wants to win more so than be the reason for them winning, if that makes sense. And that's that's the biggest problem with the Cowboys, in my opinion. As long as Jerry Jones uh, feels like he needs to be the key reason for them winning. They aren't going to win anything. It's been 30 years and they effectively have done nothing since their last Super Bowl victory back in the back in 1996. That's before I was born. I was born in 1997. I was born in 1997. So the Cowboys since then, when they last won the Super Bowl in 1996 with Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, Deion Sanders, that whole team, Larry Allen, the whole squad have not been a good team since then. Since I was born, since I have been alive, and essentially everybody that is playing except for Tom Brady or whatever, basically since then, uh, for the most part, most of the guys that play in the league now have not known a good and a, a solid Dallas Cowboys team. Like, really, a, a lot of the guys that are playing in the league now have not seen a good Dallas Cowboys team, or at least at the very least, have have been long, have been alive long, long enough to see them be terrible or bad, the lower echelon of teams than they have been the America's team of the Super Bowl winning champion America's team 
of the, the late eighties and the, in the into the nineties. Like that was a long time ago. And a lot of these guys that are playing in the NFL now don't see them as that anymore. Uh, they don't see them as that because they never really saw it in the first place. Uh, I, like I said, before I was born, that's the last time they won anything was 1996. A year before I was born was the last time they won anything. And a lot of the guys that are playing in this league, me included, I mean, not, not me playing in this league, but in through my eyes, it's a similar situation. They haven't been that. They, they're just calling themselves America's team because they have the star on their helmet or whatever, and they play in Dallas, which is America America's heartland, quote-unquote, and uh, they're just saying that because they can say that. And we haven't seen any evidence of them being America's team, quote-unquote, since we've been alive. And so I think it also effectively can mitigate a lot of the people that actually want to go there because you're just talk. You know, There's nothing to what you're talking about because I've never seen it. I've never seen what you're talking about. You're America's team strictly because you say you're America's team. I don't know that you've won. You know, I understand that you won a Super Bowl, but I wasn't born. I have no idea what you're talking about. I see it through grainy SD 480p films on YouTube, on NFL films, and we talk about it like it was right around the corner. It was 25 years ago. almost No, 30 years ago now. Almost 30 years ago. 27 years ago, to be exact. The last time they did Anything important was 27 years ago. So the whole America's team mantra and all that jazz, it's just, it rubs me the wrong way. And I think a lot of, it doesn't not necessarily rubs me the wrong way, I guess. It just gets annoying because Jerry Jones just likes to use that because he's selling the product, I guess, essentially more than he is trying to effectively build a team. If he was trying to effectively build a team, he wouldn't have hired Mike McCarthy, who was out there creating plays that are 40 years older than he is and and, J- and Jason Garrett who was basically just the lapdog of Jerry Jones for seven years who only did what Jerry Jones told him to do essentially for seven years and it felt more like Jerry Jones just wanted to be a head coach at the same time that's the only reason it, it, it's just annoying I, I just dislike the Cowboys for that reason and I think a lot of Cowboys fans I don't think I'm speaking out of turn when I say this either because I think a lot of them agree with me in the sense uh, where they just uh, at this point in the, the age that we live in now where it's been 30 years since they've done anything, they're more advancing the product of the Dallas Cowboys by trying to be America's team, quote-unquote, than actually trying to win anything. Whereas, you can advance the product by simply winning. Like, you just have to win in order to advance the product. The Patriots were never more popular than they were 20, you know, basically through the 2000s all the way up until 2018 or whatever when Tom Brady left, strictly because they were the greatest piece of uh, of, of, a, of a sports you know franchise that we had ever seen of a sports career that we had ever seen that Patriots team they won six six Super Bowls over twenty years essentially and we had never seen anything like that complete domination basically every single year that Tom Brady was under center and it feels like the Cowboys are so far away from that just because they're trying to advance the product of the star on the helmet uh, as a product more than an actual uh, in an actual football team I guess is what I would say and. Um, yeah, I, I just I took note of that while I was watching the game because I was like, and mainly because the final play, I mean, the final drive in general. Let's just recap that final drive really quick. So we started with the unbelievable play by Dak Prescott. Doesn't see a lineman, a defensive lineman or a linebacker. I, came I think it was I think it was Kevon Greenlaw that came in, uh, was looking to take him down for a safety. Obviously, Dak Prescott sees him. I doesn't see him whatsoever. Looks like he's about to get hit by a truck. Doesn't look like he's trying to go down or anything like that or try to defend himself against it. And for whatever reason, Dak Prescott built like a built like a truck for whatever reason uh, is able to just bounce off this linebacker like it's no no big deal. This lineman like it's no big deal, no problem. And then uh, just throws the ball away. 
I thought he was going to get safety there for sure. I thought that game was over. I thought it was going to be a safety. I thought possible score got me. Didn't end up happening, but I thought that safety was for sure going to happen. But he doesn't, that Dak Prescott doesn't see him at all. Just doesn't see the guy at all. And for whatever reason, doesn't go down for the safety. Just bounces off that guy. Honestly, a pretty decent play in terms of just, you know, core strength. Guy just bounces right off of the defensive lineman. Uh, and then we get fast forwarding just a tad. They get a couple completions. Dak Prescott moves the ball uh, nine yards and then another nine yards with passes to Dalton Schultz. Uh, both on the right side of the field going out of bounds. Looks like they're making a little bit of momentum, but there's no timeouts. We're down to 33 seconds left. And then we get the big one, the big one. We get 14 seconds left, an incomplete pass to Michael Gallup. And then after that, 10 seconds remaining, Dak Prescott throws a beautiful pass to the right side. Looks like they're getting a, a decent amount down the field, at least two Hail Mary, a Hail Mary area for Dak Prescott. He gets a perfect pass out to Dalton Schultz. Looks like he gets both feet down. A complete pass going out of bounds. Time has stopped. We're like, all right, not not we, but it's like, okay, cool. We're going to at least see a Hail Mary. Oh, wait a minute. Dalton Schultz forgot to put his right foot down. Just forgot. Just was like, eh, you know, I'll take this one step and we'll walk out. I'll just walk out of bounds. Ah, no big deal. Who cares? Uh, I got the other foot down. It didn't matter. Just walks right out of bounds without getting his right foot down. He has his left foot down, makes the catch, and then just takes the right foot, puts it right out of bounds, not even thinking to put it down. A truly, truly head-scratching moment from 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 Dalton Schultz. Just put the other foot down. Just if you thought you had two feet down, just make it three. You could have put that other foot. You could have put your right foot down and made it a third step. Who cares? Just put the third foot down, and then you're fine. And then it's you're still out of bounds. It doesn't even matter. Nope. Only gets one foot down, out of bounds, incomplete pass. So didn't matter. So now they're on the Dallas 24. That would have put them. I think it would have been close to the 50, like the 40 yard line, something like that. 45, 50 yard line. Uh, their own 45 up to the 50-yard line, something like that. I can't remember right off the top of my head. And then, and then, the masterpiece, the creme de la creme of unbelievable moments that I have ever seen from coaching, from an offense, just from professional football, maybe. I could not believe what I was seeing. They come out and they say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do something special. I like to think that this was the play that they drew up during practice and they practiced it a bunch of different times, obviously, to try to uh, to try to beat. Obviously, the if you can't if you're not in Hail Mary ranges, you got to come up with something. And this is what they came up with. They were like, let's put two defensive linemen or excuse me, offensive linemen on the left side, very far left side by the left side numbers on the right side. You're going to put three offensive linemen on the right side, also by the numbers at center on the right hash. You're going to be hiking the ball, Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott, you're hiking the ball. With no other protection around you, mind you, Zeke. Okay, it's just you. You're, all, you're the only one there. You're hiking the ball. I don't know what you're going to do at that point. You can, you can try to pass defend, which if you're good at it, sure. A lot of running backs and wide receivers like to think, I can pass block. It's easy. You're staying in front of another guy. No problem. Zeke obviously thought that as well. Uh, they had a running, and they're in shotgun set. Dak Prescott takes the ball, and he throws it to uh, well, first off, let's just he, he he hikes the ball. Zeke hikes the ball. Pretty good snap, all all things considered, from a running back playing center for the first time, essentially, at least on a on a real football, you know, on a NFL level caliber football field. A decent snap. All's going well. It looks like we're going to set up a pretty cool, interesting looking screen here. If you're the Cowboys, you're going to either pass it right to the uh, to the to the to the group of defense or offensive linemen with your wide receiver over there on the right side or on the left side with the two offensive linemen, and another wide receiver. Uh, and maybe you get a nice little you get a nice little screen going a couple laterals. Hey, here we go. We're running down the field for a touchdown. It starts well. 
Zeke Elliott, decent, a decent snap right into the chest of Dak Prescott. He's ready to go. Zeke, this is his last season, more than likely, as a Dallas Cowboy. Probably, I would imagine, I don't think they re-sign him. I, I would not imagine if they're going to try to re-sign anybody, it's probably going to be Tony Pollard just because he's been uh, the more explosive back. And for Zeke, this is his final play. So he's expecting something bit big, I would imagine. He wants to win this game for Cowboy Nation. For the Cowboys who treated him so well, they signed him to a long-term deal. This is probably it for Ezekiel Elliott. And he's like, I'm going to go out with a dominant pass protection. I'm going to dominate this pass protection. I'm going to get open for the lateral. I'm going to try to score a touchdown. And here, here, here we go. He's going. Hikes the football. Okay, good start. I'm hiking the football. This is a great start. Put it right into Dak Prescott's chest. Oh, wait a minute. Who is this guy in front of me? To this point, to this point, Aziz El Shaeer was probably, arguably, having the best day on defense for for the uh, for the Forty ers I mean, he was having a very effective day, especially from according to PFF, he had the highest graded day on defense uh, of any of the Forty ers and he lined up right across right across from Ezekiel Elliott. So he's looking at Aziz El Shaeer. Not the biggest guy in the world, Zeke. Also not the biggest guy in the world. But he thinks, you know what, maybe I've pass blocked before as a running back. I can do that. You know, I'll do that right here with the linebacker. Linebackers have blitzed on me, and I've blocked them before, so I'm going to do that right now. So what's he do? He stands up, doesn't move his feet whatsoever, doesn't move them even a tad except to back up just a tiny bit, like kind of shuffle backwards. And Aziz Al-Shir, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run right through you. And that is exactly what he does, and it's so unfortunate. He runs just pancakes the hell out of Ezekiel Elliott. Ezekiel Elliott has no shot at blocking Aziz El Shahir. Goes right through him. And uh, it goes right through Ezekiel Elliott. He falls right on, basically gets pushed back a good four yards back into Dak Prescott. Dak Prescott, which that means essentially he has to get rid of the ball very quickly because there is a linebacker coming for him if he doesn't get rid of this ball. And he throws it to Cavante Turpin, who is uh, running a little, a little slant route that really effectively is kind of the dumbest route you could run in the situation because you have your linemen who at this point, the linemen speaking of the linemen are just standing there on both sides at the numbers. They're not moving. Uh, they haven't changed really at all. The The left side linemen at least are getting downfield to try to start creating for a screen or something like that. The right side linemen haven't moved at all. They haven't done anything. They're just kind of standing there. Uh, and uh, he doesn't throw. So Dak Prescott doesn't throw to the guys that are getting ready for a screen. Nothing like that. He throws to Cavante Turpin, who is nowhere near any of his blockers. He's throwing, he's running a, a slant route over towards the middle of the field for about eight yards, and Dak Prescott hits him right in the chest. Just a perfect pass. And we're thinking, okay, uh, he's in a bad spot, but he'll lateral. No big deal. He'll lateral it. Easy lateral, and he's going to get get it to Zeke or get it to any of his other wide receivers, CeeDee Lamb, and CeeDee Lamb's going to make stuff happen because that's what he does. He's an Oklahoma legend, and he's going to make, CeeDee Lamb's going to make some stuff happen. Oh, wait a minute. No, he's not, because he just gets rammed, just absolutely railed by by Jimmy Ward. A perfect form tackle right at the legs, right when the ball hits Cavante Turpin. Cavante Turpin does make the catch, but he doesn't do anything after that. So it's a slant for eight yards. Clock runs out. Game's over. What a play call that was. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. I felt so bad for Zeke, because that is probably the last play we're going to see him in a Cowboys uniform is him just getting basically pancaked for four yards as an offensive lineman against a, a, a linebacker that he had no reason standing up against. And, uh, and then uh, the, the, the little slant pass for eight yards that led to nothing. I had no idea what they were trying to do. And it looked like most of the team, most of the Cowboys had no idea what they were trying to do either. They had no idea what they were attempting to do. Dak Prescott, obviously 
in my eyes, obviously did not throw it to the correct person. I think they were trying to do a screen pass. Devontae Turpin started running a slant for some reason, and uh, none of the blockers were in front of him, obviously, for any, or, or anything like that. He gets lit up for at, at the, for an eight-yard gain by Jimmy Ward, and that's the game. The game is over, and <laughs> I could not believe what I was seeing. I was like, well, what am I watching right now? How is this the way the game ends? And I was wheezing at Ezekiel, Ezekiel Elliott. I felt bad, but I was wheezing because he he got lit up. I don't think he was expecting Aziz Alshir to blitz there. I think he was kind of expecting him to maybe uh, feign a pass rush or something like that, drop into a little bit of a coverage, more of a prevent. Aziz Alshir just bull rushed him and put him right on uh, right on the ground, right on the ground, about four yards away from the line of scrimmage. And uh, I, I just, I felt bad for Ezekiel Elliott. I was so confused at what I was watching. It was unbelievable. It was awesome. It was perfect way for the Cowboys season to end because it was just, it's like, it's peak Cowboys because they talk, you know, they're the America's team. They're the best team, uh, best, most valuable team, most valuable sporting anything in the world. But on the field, this is what they're developing. Some weird 1930s, uh, we're going to catch the ball. And I run a double screen with our linemen split on both ends of the field so that they can uh, get ready to block and get downfield. And this is what we're running off the field. We have the best logo. We have the we have the biggest name in all of sports in terms of, in terms of monetary value. But you know, what we don't have any sort of strategic value. <laughs> we are not good strategically on offense. Defense, sure, pretty good. We're, we're pretty good, but our, our defensive coordinator is more than likely getting a head coaching job, so who knows where that's going to leave us at the end of this year. We have the arguably the most uh, impressive defensive specimen in football that we've seen in a long time coming off the edge playing linebacker in Micah Parsons. Are we going to do anything with him? I don't know. Who knows? We haven't done anything else with our uh, most incredible players that we've had in the last 30 years of our franchise. Who knows what we're going to do with him? It was just so Cowboys. It was so Cowboys. It was peak Cowboys. And the 49ers, with their unbelievable defense, their, you know, pretty solid offense, if if all thing, if everything's going well, that's how they can get beat, in my opinion. If they go up against a defense that is somewhat equivalent to theirs and they get into more of a shootout, I trust, you know, which is probably what's going to happen next week against the uh, against the Eagles, who have a very good defense as well, and I'm excited to see that matchup. Uh, I trust somebody like Jalen Hurts maybe a little bit more than Brock Purdy because Brock Purdy, Brock Purdy has not necessarily had to... Uh, playing a situation like that, and we'll see what happens in that. But we get the matchups we wanted. I think the best matchups of the of of possible, the best matchups possible for our conference championships in terms of Bengals, Chiefs, uh, Eagles, 49ers, the, the four best teams, I think, remaining in the NFL this season are the teams that we got in the conference championships. And I hope it's better game. I, ho- I hope there are better uh, games than we got in the divisional. Uh, but that ending and the Cowboys game, uh, was just phenomenal. It was so good, man. I hadn't laughed like that in a long time just because I saw I was watching Zeke just to see what he does because I was like, they're pro- they're going to throw it to him, right? Like, this is what's going on here. They're going to throw it to Ezekiel Elliott, and he's going to start developing a screen more or less with uh, all of the linemen running in from basically all directions, and uh, that is not what happened. That is not what happened at all. I thought he was going to maybe block the linebacker that was coming after Dak for a second and fall out to try to do a a start a screen play essentially, and he just gets ran over, and that was the end of the play. <laughs> uh, and that was uh, what a way to end the season for the Cowboys. It was just awesome. It was awesome. Uh, it was awesome. And now they have more questions. They're going to have more questions than answers at this point. And the offseason is going to be a a a lot of questions that are probably going to be unanswered if you're a Cowboys fan because I don't know what more they can really do at this point uh, with what they have. So. 
That's divisional weekend. Uh, honestly, not the best of games. The Eagles game was essentially over at halftime. The Chiefs, I mean, Jags didn't play well, like or didn't necessarily play bad, like I said, but the Chiefs are just so much better than the Jags, uh, basically at every position that it didn't really matter. The Bengals, uh, it, the score seemed like made it seem like it was closer, but they more or less dominated the Bills in that game. And then the 49ers and Cowboys was the best game, but not the most entertaining on the eyes, I would say, in terms of offensive output. But, but really quickly, Fred Warner, if you haven't seen this clip, he had the play of the day, the play of the day. He lines up. This is a pass play. I believe it's in the, let me look, because I have it here saved on Twitter. It's 6.09 left in the third quarter. It's a third and five. Fred Warner, by the way, a linebacker, not a safety or cornerback or anything like that. Fred Warner's lined up on the same hash as the ball, the far hash if you're looking down from the camera. Uh, and he's he's lined up in the A-gap looking like he's trying. He's going to blitz Dak Prescott in this situation. C.D. Lamb comes across the formation, and he lines up on the opposite hash, basically in the seam uh, for this play. And they hike the ball. Dak Prescott's looking for C.D. Lamb. Fred Warner is faking a blitz, faking a blitz, and he basically sprints toe-for-toe, foot-for-foot with C.D. Lamb in this situation down on a seam, basically a seam uh, post route, more or less. Uh, it's... Basically a, a fly route, but it's it looks more like a post when he throws it. Um, it's a fly route, and CeeDee Lamb is being ran with toe-for-toe toe with Fred Warner. And CeeDee Lamb starts in a more optimal position. He's running straight away. Fred Warner has to basically turn around and sprint to catch CeeDee Lamb, and he catches him and, make it, and creates a pass breakup. It's one of the—it's harder to explain as you're watching it, but if you go and watch this clip on Twitter, it is an unbelievable play by a linebacker able to go— toe-for-toe with a wide receiver in that situation on a straight seam route uh, going down the field. It was an unbelievable play by Fred Warner, and he had an unbelievable game, just in general. I mean, he's one of the more, he's probably the best linebacker just, you know, in terms of all, every single ability in the game right now, and he maybe almost does not get enough recognition for how really good he is. I mean, he is absolutely one of the best linebackers in the game right now, and uh, on arguably the best defense on the t- in the league right now. So that's it. That's 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 that. That's that was the play of the week in my opinion. So we get a lot of good matchups um for conference championships. The four best teams I think in my opinion uh that we have left here and uh, I'm excited to see what happens. I'm excited to see. I hope I'm really hoping we get good games because the divisional round again was not the best. Uh, Cowboys 49ers was really the only game that felt like it was in reach for the opposing team that lost uh, more so than any of the others. The Jags felt like I mean, it was a backdoor cover for the Jags. They were never really that close. Um, the Bills were getting just handled no matter what they were doing. And, of course, the Giants, same thing. They were getting handled no matter what they were doing. That game was over by halftime. So uh, I'm hoping for better conference championship games. And if this is a pattern, then maybe not better conference championship games so we get a good Super Bowl. Who knows what's going to happen? We'll see. But I'm excited because we're getting the four best teams in the NFL playing for a spot in the Super Bowl. All right, we're going to switch over really quickly. I'm getting a little bit long on time here, but we're going to switch over really quickly to baseball. Pitchers and catchers report here in about a month. I'm getting excited again. I can feel the spring is kind of creeping up in the air a little bit because we're getting more uh, some more clips and stuff of players pitching and stuff like that uh, over in their in their summer homes or whatever. Uh, they're doing uh, they're doing they're doing some pitching drills and stuff like that. So I'm getting the feel a little bit. I'm getting the feel in me, and we get pitchers and catchers reporting in February, but more importantly, pitchers and catchers report mid-February, but more importantly, the WBC is coming. The World Baseball Classic is on its way, and that is, in my opinion, one of the better international tournaments that we get from our our big four sporting leagues here. Uh, hockey, 
Hockey's always going to have a bit a good a good tournament of their own because it's a lot of international players, obviously. Um, but the NFL, you know, football doesn't really have one. Uh, basketball has one, but let's be honest, it's kind of a joke because America dominates in that sport for a lot of the time. Um, but baseball, it's interesting because you get a lot of international players as well. You know, Japan, South Korea, and then in the Caribbean, the Caribbean section of the world, uh, you got your teams in uh, in the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico. And so on and so forth. The the list goes on and on for a lot of those teams. They're all very solid. Venezuela, another solid team as well. Um, and they can kind of match or be equivalent to the American team in a lot of senses. But it doesn't feel like there's a huge gap between uh, the top three or four teams in the world when it comes to baseball in general. So I think that's actually a good a a spot that baseball could dominate in if they really wanted to, if baseball made a concerted effort, you know, for the collective powers of baseball, if you will, made a concerted effort to make it a more international game, if you will. The MLB had some sort of a uh, Champions League or something like that. I think that would be cool. We're like the best teams in the MLB, the top four, or the best, the champion of the MLB, if you will, goes and plays the champion of Japan or whatever, the champion of South Korea, because they all have leagues and stuff and stuff like that. So, it would probably be very much more in favor of the U.S., obviously, just like it is kind of in favor for a couple specific uh, specific locales in, in soccer. But I think it would be interesting because I think there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot of international interest in the game of baseball, more so than there is in a lot of the other big four sports that we have here in America. Um, and I think that's kind of a, a section that's not carved out by any other sport here in America. And I think that would be interesting. Um, so speaking of the WBC and speaking of the uh, other teams, I want to talk about one team in particular, the Dominican Republic team. WBC starts on March 8th. That's when group play starts, and it's the World Baseball Classic. It's all these teams from all across the all across the world getting together and playing. It's basically the national, it's the World Cup of baseball. Just look at it that way. It's the World Cup of baseball. And the Dominican Republic, the Dominican Republic team, might have the baseball equivalent of the dream team of the American basketball dream team uh, as their roster heading into this tournament. It is an absurd roster. Let me just read this this preliminary starting lineup. This is kind of something that uh, people came up. This is their this is their roster. Like they didn't make up this roster or anything like that. This is the roster that they're going with, and this is just the idea of uh, th- this is the idea of a starting lineup that we're going to get from the Dominican Republic. Let me just read it out to you. And no. This is no, no susceptible order or anything like that. Let me just read it out to you. Center field, Julio Rodriguez. Second base, Jose Ramirez. Left field, Juan Soto. First base, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Fifth, playing DH, Rafael Devers. Third base, Manny Machado. Shortstop, Jeremy Pena. Eighth, hitting or playing catcher, Gary Sanchez. And starting pitcher number one, Sandy Alcantara. What is that lineup? That lineup is so. That lineup goes 182 and 0 in baseball. That is the only weak spot that I can see. Uh, is probably catcher Sanchez is maybe not. I, I mean, he's not the best catcher in the world. He will fit on this team just fine. Uh, he's still a starting catcher in this league. But every other one of those players in that lineup is a superstar. Is a superstar. Jeremy Pena, the shortstop, just won World Series MVP. Julio Rodriguez just won Rookie of the Year. Jose Ramirez, Juan Soto, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Rafael Devers, Manny Machado, all all stars. Uh, and uh, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, ladies and gentlemen. That does not. That is not where it starts. Let me read off the rest of their pitching as well. Sandy Alcantara just said him. Framber Valdez, Christian Javier, Luis Castillo. Those are your starting your pitching rotation. Your starting pitchers in the bullpen. 
You've got Brian Abreu, Camilo Doval, Cesar Valdez, Diego Castillo, Emmanuel Classe, Felix Bautista, Frankie Montaz, Freddy Peralta, Genesis Cabrera, Gregory Soto, Hector Neris, Johan Duran, Johnny Cueto, Jose Leclerc, Rafael Montero, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Wandy Peralta, and Yimi Garcia. And then you have their bench. Their damn bench. Ahmed Rosario, Eloy Jimenez, Francisco Mejia, Franmil Reyes, Gene Segura, Jorge Polanco, Jose Siri, Cattell Marte, Marcel Ozuna, O'Neal freaking Cruz, Pedro Severino, Robinson Cano, Teoscar, Teoscar Hernandez, Wander Franco, and Willie Adamas. That, ladies and gentlemen, is as good of a collection of baseball players that I can remember uh, on this World Baseball Classic team for the Dominican Republic. They are going to... I, they might not dominate. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but they're going to be very good. And it's going to be very fun to, if you're not wanting to, if you're not interested in the world, ball, world baseball classic, you should be interested in it just to watch this team play because that is such an absurd lineup. Let me read. This is the collective. This is their, their collective stats total uh, for this team. They have 45 total all-star selections, 22 silver sluggers, seven gold gloves, 2,422 total home runs hit between all of them and 8,228 RBI batted in. Runs batted in from between them all. 8,228. An absurd, an absurd team. Now, the U.S. team also, not necessarily anything to blink at. I mean, they're a very good team as well. They're going to have uh, JT Realmuto, Will Smith as their catcher spots, Pete Alonso, Paul Goldschmidt at first base, Jeff McNeil. They had Trevor Story as well, but he got hurt. Uh, but Jeff McNeil as the only second baseman right now. Nolan Arenado, Bobby Witt Jr., uh, Tim Anderson, Trey Turner, uh, Mookie Betts, Bryce Harper, Cedric Mullins, Mike Trout, Kyle Tucker, and Kyle Schwarber rounds out the rest of their roster, their uh, their their hitting roster, I guess is what you'd say, their offensive side of the roster. David Bednar, Dylan Tate, Devin Williams, Adam Ottavino as the relief pitchers as of right now. Clayton Kershaw, Adam Wainwright, Nestor Cortez, Kyle Freeland, Brady Singer, Merrill Kelly, and Logan Webb as their pitchers. So a very solid U.S. team. As well, nothing to nothing to nothing to bat your eyes at if you're the U.S. And this is why you should be watching. It's essentially an all-star team. It's essentially an all-star game that actually has like matters really in the grand scheme of things. They're playing for a trophy. You know, obviously, it's like the World Cup. Like I said, it's they're playing for a trophy uh, in the World Baseball Classic. And I'm interested to see what happens. It's going to be fun. The first games for our side of the pool, ours being the United States, our side of the pool is Saturday, March 11th. Puerto Rico plays Nicaragua in the in the very first game uh, at Lone Depot Park in Miami. That starts at 10. And then the, the United States takes on the oldest rival in the old book. And a game that we should dominate takes on Great Britain at 7 p.m. So we tied them in soccer during the World Cup. But guess what? There's no tying in baseball, baby. And the United States is coming for the kill. Okay, so Dominican Republic, excuse me, the Dominican Republic starts their first game. I said Puerto Rico, excuse me. Dominican Republic is before the United States. They start at 5 p.m. our time. They're taking on Venezuela. Venezuela, a very good team as well. Sneaky good team as well. And the United States plays after. That's also uh, the United States game is at Chase Field in Phoenix, where the Diamondbacks play. So World Baseball Classic, an underrated event, honestly, does not get nearly as much love as it should because it is a fun event. It's just the World Cup for baseball. It's smaller than the World Cup, obviously, because there's not nearly as many teams that play uh, in, you know, in, in terms of competitive baseball in the world, other than, you know, your, your Colombian, your Colombian, uh, or excuse me, your Caribbean, your Caribbean countries in Colombia, you know, Mexico, Nicaragua, 
Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, so on, so on, so on and so forth. Netherlands as well. Some reason has a team. Xander Bogarts plays for the Netherlands. Fun fact for you there. Uh, Panama as well is going to be pretty solid. Italy should be good. Japan is always pretty effective at what they do. China and the Chinese Taipei. South Korea has got a team as well. It's just fun. It's a good time to watch. Okay, so check out the World Baseball Classic. It's right around the corner, ladies and gentlemen. It is March 11th. That's when our first game is, the United States' first game. And then we can watch uh, the Dominican Republic come out with their absurd team on March 11th as well. It's going to be uh, it's gonna be fun. I'm excited. It's, it's, I'm excited. I'm excited for the World Baseball Classic. Sue me. Everybody should watch that. It's a, it's a fun event. All right, really quickly, we're going to talk about uh, one more thing in baseball as well. The Rockies. Because we're in the uh, kind of towards the tail end of the baseball offseason, if you will. I would say pretty much towards the end. Since pitchers and catchers are reporting in a month, we're not going to see a whole lot of uh, more, you know, roster signings or anything like that or big roster signings like that. And the Rockies, the Rockies GM came out and said uh, they were pretty much done putting together their roster, which fair enough. I think a lot of teams are. Pretty much done putting together their roster. And I bet you're wondering, hey, what how, what did the Rockies do during the offseason? That's a great question. What did they do? Did they have a very good offseason? The answer is yes, my friends. They had an unbelievably bad offseason. That's correct. Did you think I was going to say good there? Of course not because it's the Colorado Rockies. A poverty franchise. A bad franchise run not by very good and effective people, unfortunately. They are a bad franchise. And guess what they signed? They signed... Uh, an incredible and amazing two people in the free agency window, Jose Urania and Pierce Johnson. Let's give another round of applause for the Rockies. <laughs> Unbelievable job, Rockies. I, you know what? I can see you guys. You're, you're at least at the very least competing for the NL West crown. And if not that you're going for the wild card, I can see it. You're shooting for it. Good job to the Rockies. Here is their adjusted salary for the Rockies this upcoming season. Chris Bryant played 42 games last year. He makes he's going to make nearly as much money as he did. He's make about half as much money as he did play in games last season. Uh, he's going to make 27 million dollars, 28 adjusted salary with a signing bonus, 28 million dollars. Uh, he signed on for the next uh, all the way through 2027. Through 2027, ladies and gentlemen. Also, no trade clause. So if you're thinking you're getting rid of him, he's got a full no trade clause either. So from 2023, this upcoming season, all the way to 2027. Uh, 2024, he's going to make $28 million. 2025, he's going to make $27 million. 2026, $27 million as well. And as well as 2027, $27 million as well. How about that? A good, and you know what? Could uh, could turn out to be a good signing. You know, if he if he stays healthy, maybe he pops some dingers. He's 31 years old. By the time he's 20, uh, 2027, he's going to be about 35 years old, right? 34, 35 years old. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe he gets some dingers. He's playing at a very batter-friendly field. Who knows? Maybe he turns out to be an effective signing. Is he worth the amount of money that they paid him? Absolutely not, especially with the team that they have built around him. The next uh, guy that they have in 2023 that's making the most amount of money, $15 million per year, Charlie Blackman, ladies and gentlemen. Woo! Charlie Blackman, a decent name not too long ago, but is he very good now? Absolutely not. No, he is not. He will not even. T I don't think he'll bring anything of value to the trade market. Herman uh, Marquez, a guy that we saw uh, that, that not we. Uh, I'm not a Rockies fan. I'm not. I don't do that to myself. Uh, the Rockies, 15, 15 million dollars to Herman Marquez as well. He finished the season last year with a four point nine five ERA and a four point seven one FIP. 
1.4 wins above replacement. Not necessarily a guy you want to be signed into $15 million contracts. Kyle Freeland is going to make $10.5 million this year and then all the way into 2027 where he will end his contract for $17 million. He will be making $15 million this upcoming season, or excuse me, in 2024. 2025 is going to be 16 million, 16 million again in 2026, and then finally 2027, $17 million. You, you know what those numbers get you, Rockies fans? If you're a Rockies fan, this is what they're going to get you. How about three straight season of an ERA plus four and a FIP above four as well? An XERA of 5.13 in 2020, 4.18 in 2021, and 5.11. In 2022, he had an ERA of 6.73 in 2019. He was 9-11 last year. He has not had a winning record as a pitcher since 2018 when he first signed this contract in the po- in the offseason. And uh, it's been downhill from there since. So Kyle Freeland on the board. He's on the board all the way until 2027 where he is being paid $17 million in the final year of his contract. Does this feel like the team that looks like it's ready to go? I'm being sarcastic here, obviously. The only guy that is worth... Uh, he's only getting paid $7.25 million and has only been, he's 33 years old. That's probably not going to increase from here with CJ Crone. He he held up his end of the bargain. He played very well last year. Uh, and, uh, you know, he could be signed on to a long-term deal, but I wouldn't want to sign him for a lot longer than maybe a three-year contract or something like that because he is getting up there in age. He's 33. He's a first baseman. Um, does this feel like a team that looks like they have any sort of direction? They signed Chris Bryant, who was 31 years old. Uh, $28 million, $28 million, $27 million, all the way into 2027. Are you effectively trying to become better or are you trying to sell tickets? If you're Rockies, if you're the Rockies, I don't know the answer to that question because you are trying to get better by signing Chris Bryan, I guess, but with everything else that is surrounded around him makes it seem like you're just trying to sell tickets. You're paying Randall Gritchick, a right fielder, 31 years old, $10 million this season. Kyle Freeland, who has not had an ERA below 4.3 in the past three seasons, actually four seasons, you're paying him $10.5 million and then $15 plus million per year up until 2027, where it ends with $17 million. I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what the Rockies are trying to do. Uh, this is a bad franchise. Uh, if you're a Rockies fan, I, I truly feel bad for you. Uh, there is not a lot that I could say that will make you feel better. If the Rockies had any sort of sense of direction, in my opinion, they would try to sell off a lot of these kind. You're not going to sell Chris Bryant. You were stuck with him. Again, No a full no trade clause on, attached to his contract all the way through 2027. Uh, Charlie Blackman, I would try to sell his bat as well. Herman Marquez, he at least has a tiny bit of value. Try to get a pick out of him. Kyle Freeland, Good luck. You're stuck with that money for the rest of your life. There's nobody that's going to trade for him unless he has an outstanding year at the beginning of this season, which is possible. I'm not saying that's impossible by the time the trade deadline. Maybe Kyle Freeland's had a bounce back year, but the last three seasons, they've been saying that as well, and that's not come to fruition in any of those. Randall Gritchick, 31 years old, $10 million. Maybe a right fielder that you can plug and play if uh, your right fielder goes down and your playoff team looking for an extra bat. Maybe that's a situation. Uh, CJ Crone is the only guy that I think I would keep in this scenario, but if he's only he's only on the one-year contract until the end of the season maybe sell him i would sell him you'd probably get a decent especially if he's playing like he did last year they should have traded him last year in my opinion honestly they weren't competing for anything they should have got rid of him at the trade deadline and got capitalized the absolute most of what you could have gotten out of cj crone picks or whatever only positive that the rockies have right now is their farm system looks to be building some pretty decent bats uh in the farm system 
Uh, Zach Veen is probably going to come up this season, I would imagine. He's in the double A right now. He's an outfielder, 21 years old. He's a lefty, six foot four. Decent bat on him. Ezekiel Tovar, he's a guy that came up earlier this season. He's in the MLB right now. He'd probably get thrown down into the double A's once again, I would imagine, at some point this season. Uh, he's in the MLB. He's 21, six foot, bats right. Uh, but a lot of the guys after that, they are. They are uh, a long ways away, and especially pitchers. The The only top-ranked pitcher that they have in the top five, according to MLB.com, is Gabriel Hughes, and he has an ETA of about 2025. 20, he's 21 years old, six foot four, throws righty. He's in single A right now, pitching in single A. The only other right-handed pitcher in the top ten is Jaden Hill. He's also in single A. Uh, expected time of rival, 2025. He's 23 years old, six foot four, throws right-handed. So, Colorado Rockies fans, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I feel for you. Uh, this is going to be a a tough year, as it has been for the last five years. I don't know what to really tell you to make you feel better because it doesn't feel like this team, this ownership group, this front office has any sort of sense of direction. They signed Chris Bryant just because it felt like they could. They said, you know what, we could sign him, and they overpaid the hell out of him. They said, we can sign him. He got injured and played for about half Played for less than half the year, 42 games, if I remember correctly, and uh, was not worth it that first year. Maybe he turns it around. Hey, whatever. I don't see a scenario in which he's worth the $28 million down to $27 million all the way through 2027. He's 31 years old. He already has injury problems. I don't see a scenario in which he's worth that. Maybe if he is dragging the Rockies into playoff contention, that's the only situation where it's worth it. But there's nobody else in this lineup or in the rotation as of right now, that is going to provide any sort of spark that leads them to a postseason run. Marquez, possibly, I'll give you him a, I'll give him a slight, slight nod because he was an all-star just two years ago when they were at Coors Field. Uh, but other than that, Kyle Freeland, no, uh, he has not shown that whatsoever. Uh, Daniel Bard is another one, a relief pitcher. He was a solid closer last year, but he's 38 years old. You got to imagine he's getting towards the end of his uh, his career as a pitcher. They're paying him nine and a half million dollars per year until 2024. Rockies fans, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I'll I will listen to the Rockies. Obviously, I'll watch the Rockies if I can. Uh, but right now, the positive thing about the Rockies: one, you're going to see a lot of home runs at the field, obviously, and two, the tickets will more than likely be cheap because they're not going to be playing for a lot by the time August hits uh, on the calendar or September hits on the calendar. You're going to be see a lot of good players from different teams. Uh, for cheap, and that's why you would go to Rockies games, uh, given how it looks right now. And I will call myself out if they turn up to be, if they, you know, turn this around somehow and end up playing very good. Uh, but uh, given the fact that it's essentially the same lineup as last year in every single way, uh, then, you know, uh, I don't see that changing very much. They're still paying, uh, also, they're still paying Nolan Arenado, by the way. Uh, they're still paying him $16 million this season because they agreed to pay part of his salary as well on the back end. So whatever uh, the Rockies, good luck, man. Good luck. Rockies fans uh, until you get a complete overhaul of that front office and the ownership group. I don't really see this changing very much in the near future either. So I wanted to talk about that just because I saw that uh, quote from the GM, uh, the GM being Bill Schmidt. He said that he said that uh, we are likely done putting together the team uh, per he said Patrick Saunders was the one that first reported that. And uh, they signed two players in the in the offseason two players two total players in the offseason um so if it's me you just sell you're selling not not the team necessarily but you got to start taking pieces out of this and start getting picks for it or whatever 
younger guys in the in the in the farm systems and start building a farm system. If you're the Rockies, you could dominate the Midwest as a team. If you're the Rockies, the entire Midwest would care about the Rockies if they were good. One, because they play at a fun stadium that uh, is deeply attractive to hitters that hitters want to go play at because you're hitting bombs all the time at uh, at Coors Field. Granted, pitchers wouldn't want to play there, but at the very least, you could find pitchers that maybe would be up to the challenge for playing for the Rockies. And if they had a decent team that was building through the farm system, they could sign free agents, especially hitters that would want to play at Coors Field because it's Coors Field and you can do essentially whatever you want at Coors Field if you're a hitter and play well there. So they've lost too many guys at this point that I have no confidence in them to build a star player and then be able to keep them in the long run. And um, that's the Rockies. I thought I would update you guys on that. I got a little heated just because that quote from that, from from their GM was so frustrating. It was just, if he thinks this is the team that is built for success, then clearly he is completely wrong, and I don't imagine that he does see that because they are obviously smarter than I am in in that sense, uh, in, in the team-building aspect. So, whatever. We'll see what the Rockies do. <laughs> well, probably last place in the NL West, if we're being honest. Maybe maybe fourth place if the, uh, the Diamondbacks are bad as well. We'll see. Uh, all right. We went a tad bit over time, uh, and we're going to wrap up the show here. I do want to end this show with a pretty... A stunning stat for you, a little stat of the day, if you will, to end the week on, to end the show with. Here's your stat. According to Codify Baseball on Twitter, intentional walks, career intentional walks. Barry Bonds had 688 total intentional walks in his entire career. Every single Tampa Bay Ray ever, Tampa Bay Devil Ray and Ray ever, has a total of 663 combined. (laughs) So Barry Bonds has uh, a 20... Five intentional walk lead over the ta- every single Tampa Bay Ray in the history of that franchise. Just Barry Bonds. That's your stat of the day. Thank you very much for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. I have been your host, James Timberlake, and this has been the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. Mm-hmm.